So um, the 490 years has, has been uh, expended, so to speak. So God has been patient, patient with these Jewish people. And uh, looking at verse 4, how, why is it dangerous to take the patience and kindness of God for granted? Sooner or later, grieve away the Spirit of God, and therefore you cannot repent. What, what happens when a person takes somebody for granted? What happens in a marriage when people do that? Yeah, that's right. What did you say? Yeah, that's right. What happens is that people's hearts become hardened. And they don't appreciate. That's why thankfulness is at the root of gratefulness is at the root of um, of salvation in one sense of the word. All right, let's go on. Let's look at number five. If you're uh, looking at your ask the question, your lesson: How does how do God's patience and kindness build trust, and how does that lead to repentance? How does God's patience and kindness build? trust. These are not the fill-in-the-blank kind of questions that are meant to make you think just a little bit. Well, what happens when people show you kindness? When people are nice to you? What's that? It builds affection for that person, doesn't it? Yeah. And if affection is built, what else is built? Trust is built. So that's why God's patience, His kindness, builds Trust and love and in our hearts for Him. Let's look at verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you treasuring up for yourself wrath and the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. By what attitude does one store up the wrath of God against himself? Yeah. If you have a hard heart, what kind of behavior are you going to exhibit? And the more bad behavior you commit, or we commit, the more we become guilty before the judgment bar of God. Yes? Even though we can only please God by faith, um, our work, our results of our faith, and if our hearts are hardened, then our works show that as well. And then God's judgment is judged. That's right. Sin is the transgression of the law. We'll see that again here before we get to it. So it's the misbehavior, but what's behind the misbehavior? And that's what Paul and Jesus were getting to. Yes. The longer we do this, we're putting it off, the tougher it is for the Holy Spirit to break through because it becomes a wall where you can't be penetrated. That's right. That's right. In order to change a person's behavior, the heart has to be changed. And the longer we resist the goodness and the kindness of God that's trying to build love and trust with us, the more bad behavior we're going to build. Does God, what is the day of wrath? What would be another day, what would be another name for that day? Day of judgment. 
day of judgment. Um, all right, let's look at verse uh, 6, chapter 2. Who will render, talking about the who is God there, who will render to each according to his what? Who will render each? Um, so is God specific? Is He a just God? And what does He take into account when He renders recompense or He renders judgment? What happens in a human court? Do they judge you for your motives or do they judge you for your deeds? It's a good question, isn't it? Yeah, it's a premeditated can we establish that? But ultimately it's the deed, and then they may add penalties for hate crimes. Am I right? In other words, that's a motive that they try to... The, the difficult is trying to judge motives. The courts try. One of the first, every time they have a terrorist act, somebody will say, why? Or you have some terrible, heinous act where people's lives are lost. Why? That's the first question people ask. But it's very difficult to judge some of that. But there's no question that you can judge the deed. You judge the deed. You may not understand why a person stole something, but the fact that he stole it is a fact. Um, let's go on to... Yes. Let me ask let me ask a question. How do we represent justice? What kind of imagery do we use to represent justice in this huh? Yes, there is a balance. But who holds the balance? No, and I'm talking about the symbol that we use for justice in this What'd you say? Why is she blindfolded? She's holding a pair of balances and she's blindfolded. Why is she blindfolded? Yes. There's no partiality. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are. I've been watching some of the uh, interesting debates going on over some issues that I want to get into politically. And they're not just talking about the present, they're talking about the past. And some of the argument is, are we treating certain people different in this country from a justice standpoint because they are who they are instead of saying, what did they do? What did they do? 
Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't take into account where we came from. And I think that's her point. Uh, that's your point. God does take into account. But there's never an excuse for sin. Is hunger an excuse? Does that make it right? What, what about Jesus? Would he have starved to death if he had not had permission? He refused to satisfy a legitimate need. Was hunger a legitimate need? It's a legitimate need. He refused to satisfy it in an illegitimate way. Please. It's sad to say, but we're fast living in society. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Mm. And that sure takes the blinders off the Lady Justice, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, uh huh. Elder Yes. Okay. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, a blind attorney you were assigned. Very, very interesting. All right, let me uh, continue on here. Let's go to verses 7 and 8, because I want to get into chapter 3. Chapter 3 is one of the clearest definitions of the gospel that we have in Scripture. It's just a powerful definition of the gospel, and we want to get into that. All right, let's, uh, let's look at verses 7 and 8. And I get to find my place here. <clears throat> okay, verse 6 says, Who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But those who are self-seeking, what's another word we'd use for that word? Selfishness. And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Look at that word obey. They don't obey what? but they do obey. So there's behavior is determined by the condition of that heart again, indignation and wrath. So the question here that we ask, in these two verses, two hearts are revealed that produce two different sets of actions. List the phrases that describe the two hearts. So who can do that for me? Look at the verse. Tell me the two phrases that describe two different hearts in human beings, in verses 7 and 8. Patient continuance in doing good. A person who does patient continuance that's coming out of a good heart. And what's the other phrase then? It's the self-seeking. The self-seeking. Those are the two different hearts that are described uh, in that verse. Okay, look at uh, the next question, number nine. Why do you think Paul puts so much emphasis on doing good and obeying the truth? Yeah, it reveals the condition of the heart. It reveals, it reveals the fruit of the life. And if you have a fruit tree and you have an apple tree and it's a special apple tree, what do you want from that apple tree? You want that... Spartan apple, or you want that uh, Cortland apple. You want that apple. Uh, and you certainly don't want 
some gnarly thing that doesn't, yeah, you don't want that. No, you, you want something specific. God wants good behavior. He wants good fruit. And he should be able to expect that. Good for, what, what would you rather have? Would you rather have a tangled mess, briars and all that kind of thing? Or would you love to have a well-ordered fruit orchard? What would you rather live near? What could you live off of? Can you live off, can you live off of um, um, can you can you live off a of bramble patch? What about that or how, what about that uh, orchard? Can you live off the orchard? We do. We have one right over here. I'm just making just a little bit more room here. I'm sorry about my noise. You want to go through over there, Lori? I got one over there for you. All right. Okay, I'll shut this off now. <laughs> that works. Sorry to be in No, not a problem. So here, here's my point. You can live off an orchard, but you can't live off a bramble uh, uh, tangle. And, and so go, what good works does, what good deeds does, it produces an orchard, something that's wonderful and good, but selfishness produces something that you cannot live with. Or four. Okay, let's go on to, um, well, let me note the note here. Anyone who teaches the Apostle Paul's concept, the gospel, leaves man free to disobey without con- consequences, has not read the preceding verses. Let's go to number 10. I want to read verses 9, 10, and 11. Um, those who are self-seeking, bringing indignation and wrath, and then he goes on, it also brings tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does the evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is no partiality. So if you're obeying the truth, what are you going to get? You're going to get peace and joy and happiness. You're going to get the orchard. If you're obeying unrighteousness and selfishness, what are you going to get? A tangle, a bramble pile, so to speak. All right. And uh, so there is a cause and effect, even in the gospel, that that happens. Let's look at verse 12, looking at verse 12 in chapter 2. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Here are two groups of people represented. Who is the group without the law? The the Gentiles, or people who don't know know Christ. Who are the people with the law? They're the Jewish people. But if they both sin, what happens to both of them? Yeah. Verse uh, 12 tells us that both groups die or perish because of sin. Let's look at, um, I'm not going to take time to go there because uh, you know the definition of sin. It's the transgression of the law, but it's a very important one. Let's go down to number 14 in your lesson. I want to look at verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just in the sight of God, but the what? Whoa! Is Paul teaching out of both sides of his mouth? Is he saying on one side, 
You're saved by your works. On the other side of his mouth, you're saved by faith in Christ. He's clear here. That's a clear statement. It's the doers of the law, verse 13, who will be justified. There's that word. No, he's not teaching out of both sides of his mouth. But he is saying that we must have an end result. What's the end result? Doers. That's what the gospel is all about. It's about producing people who are doers of the law. But we can't produce that on our own, and we understand that, and we'll see that. Look at verse, uh, again, uh, looking at verse four, 13. According to this text, who will be justified or accepted before God? And then you can note the note. I wanted to bring, and I forgot to get it down here. Maybe I'll bring it tomorrow. I wrote an article some years ago called uh, Father Law and Mother Grace. Um, and showing how the two of them work together, Father Law and Mother Grace. I'm not going to get into it today. Maybe I'll bring it tomorrow and I'll read it to you. It's, uh, it's uh, just a short, it's about 1,200 words, probably 1,500 words. It won't take me long to read it. But it's just kind of a parable that helps to illustrate this whole issue of how the law and the grace work together. I want to look at the note there just for a moment. And right in the center of it, uh, we have an answer to this dilemma. This one statement puts the entire human race at jeopardy. And the reason that we're at jeopardy is because there's no doers of the law that are perfectly. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So I can't just say, here's, here's somebody that is doing it. No, they don't exist. But those are the only people that can be saved. So was there any hope for us? Paul will later declare that not even one human being has been a doer of the law. This dangerous dilemma must be corrected. Paul's answer to the dilemma is the gospel. And I can't underline that enough. Never forget that it's the gospel that brings the sinner into harmony with the law of God. It's not the gospel that gives us an excuse to do whatever we want to do. It's not the gospel and the grace of God is not license to sin. The grace of God is power to bring us into harmony with the law of God. All right? All right, let's go on down to... Um, Let's look at verse um, 14 and 16. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves, who show the work of the law, in chapter 2, we're looking at verse 15, who show the work of the law written in the heart, their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves and their thoughts accusing are excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So here's the question. How is it that the Gentiles who do not have the written law can nevertheless obey the law and therefore on the day of judgment find some peace with God? Verse 
What's that? I think we each have a conscience. And uh, I believe I read somewhere in Illinois that Holy Spirit works on everyone's conscience that is alive. And everyone ever living uh, has a chance to respond to that when we get to chapter 7 and 8, which are kind of like the heart of, of a lot of this, we're going to discover three laws, three, that are at work in the human heart. But God has written in the human heart a basic moral code. People know, basically, that it's not right to steal. I'll just use that. They know that basically that's not a right thing to do. They basically know it's not right to murder somebody else. So there are people who can become convicted of righteousness, maybe who have never heard the name of the true God, so to speak. Yes. Last evening, the speaker used this text out of James. If you think to do good, you do it not to you because it is mm-hmm. To him that knows to do good and does it not. Yeah, sometimes people don't know. There is an issue of ignorance here. Paul will talk about that in just a little bit. Nevertheless, the whole human race is under the penalty of death. Ignorance or no ignorance. We're all under the penalty of death and we're all suffering the results of sin. Uh, let, me just, um, let me just go down to verse 16. Uh, what phrase suggests that in the day of judgment, and this raises uh, uh, over here, uh, she raised this issue. What phrase suggests that in the day of judgment, God judges the very hearts of men, the source of their deeds? What's the sentence say in, chapter, in verse 16? Okay, He judges the secrets. That's what you and I cannot read about each other. Am I right? But God knows. He knows your motives. He knows your affections. He knows what drives you to do what you do. And He measures that in the day of judgment. And only He alone can do that. All right, I'm going to skip down to number 19. I think you can, you can do the others. But let's look at 24 through 29 here of chapter 2. I, I am on um, lesson 2. Yes, that would be page 4 would be page 5, I think. Yeah. Um, okay, verse, verse 24. Let's look at verse 24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Why is the name of God blasphemed among the Gentiles? Because of the Jews. Because of their hypocrisy. You're absolutely right. What, what do you get thrown in your face nowadays if you say, I'm a Christian, and you run into a Muslim or you run into an atheist? What do they say? You say, I'm a Christian. What, what, what's one of the first things they say if they don't like Christians and they don't like Muslims? What's one of the first things they'll say to you? Yeah, I mean, you Christians teach one thing and you got the Inquisition or you got the Crusades or you got... So they take all of that and they pile it in. They don't differentiate between uh, uh, those kinds of things. So when people take the name of Christian, do you think God is going to hold us accountable in a little bit more of a special way because we have revelation? Because if we practice hypocrisy, what do we do to other people's minds? 
We harden their heart. We give them an excuse not to come to Christ. That's why it's important that we set good examples. Um, I get beat up sometimes for this, but I, I, we have, and, and we're not outside the church manual, but we, we expect our ministers to hold up a high standard. Why do I do that? Why do we do that? Because I tell them, I say, you're examples to the flock. We may understand things in, in, in the members that may be perfectly lawful in a certain sense, but we expect you to do something at a higher level because you are setting an example. And if you're going around and you're careless about the edges of what's good and right, then... What will the members do or what will they think? By the way, that's good biblical thinking as well. Yes, right in the back. The members will not rise above the leadership. And that, that's true. So it's important. I got, uh, I got beat up a few years ago. Um, had a phone call or two. In our interviewing of pastors, one of the questions that we ask them is, are you a vegetarian? Now, I've got a reason for doing that. Not that. I told you yesterday that meat eating is not a sin. If it were a sin, it would be a sin where? All over the world, in all places. I think I explained that yesterday. I don't have to go into that today. It's not like stealing. But why, why, do, we, why do we do that? Why, why are we interested in that? Well, I'll tell, let me tell you why. Because most of our churches are doing health evangelism. They're ministering in their communities. And if the pastor hasn't got that figured out in his head and he's, uh, you know, he's eating uh, meat and all this thing and everybody sees it, what kind of leadership can he give if the church is trying to be a blessing and reaching out to the communities? It's just pragmatic common sense. Does that make sense? Um, so I got this phone call really, really upset with me. Uh, telling me that, you know, we didn't have a right to do that. And I was nice. I, I didn't tell the folks, well, you know, the truth is you're not the one doing the hiring. We are. I, I, uh, I, I think that we're the ones that are setting what we think we need for our, for our pastors, but I didn't. Uh, I just listened. And then I gave him just exactly what I just told you. I said, we've got all these churches that are doing that. So what happens... And then it got quiet on the other end. And it's, oh, yeah, you got a point. You got a point. Um, we just want, pa I'm not saying, you know, somewhere they get in some kind of circumstances. They, I, we don't run herd on that. We don't, we don't have a place in our workers report where you're a pure vegetarian this month, all every day, can you, we don't have anything like that. No, we just, we just want to know that they're with us and trying to give leadership to, am I right? Healthful living and our teaching of that. Does, do you have to be a vegetarian to become a Seventh-day Adventist? No, of course not. But do we want people to live healthfully? Yes. Yeah. And is that a better diet? Yeah. Uh, even I tell people, I said, I was talking to Vicki Griffin one time, I said, you know, even if we get people... Uh, 50% reduction in some of this stuff. 
That's good. That's good. You know, we're, we're trying to lift. We're trying to educate, educate, educate. That's what we're trying to do. Well, if the educator isn't uh, educated and practicing the education, then that makes a bit more different as you're trying to lift the whole. Okay, right back in the back. He says that people come to the truth through different um, influences and way and help uh, helps eating is one of the ways. Right. The doctor and his wife who saw that Adventists eat different than everything they grew up with. Yeah. And they we're baptizing people all over this conference. There was a day when I used to say to myself, we haven't figured out the link between our health evangelism and seeing people come into the church. And I think some of that's been bridged. I don't know that all of it has been, but we're seeing people baptized all over this conference. One of the big things is, is supper clubs where people build relationships with people. How many of you have supper clubs in your churches let me see your hands. I see some hands here. Um, and they are doing that like on a monthly basis and that kind of thing. And the communities are coming out. People are enjoying that kind of thing and being... And then they, they logically ask, well, what else might they know that's reasonable? So uh, kind of a thing. So anyway, there's a lot of good things happening in our churches. We praise God for that. You what you are. Speech to louder. But the world can't hear what you say. That's right, Harry. They're looking at you off, not listening to your talk. Mm. They're judging from your actions every day. Don't believe. You'll deceive by claiming what you've never known. They'll accept what they see and know you to be. They'll judge from your life alone. Amen. Amen. That, that was beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, Harold. Thank you so much for sharing it. All right. So let's, uh, let's look at this issue of circumcision. That's a, you hear that all through Scripture and why is it such a big issue and so forth. Let's look down at um, verse 25. For circumcision, that's a Jewish thing, am I right? It's a Jewish thing, so to speak. Uh, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, then your circumcision becomes what kind? What becomes uncircumcision. In other words, just like that poem you just did, you can have the sign of circumcision in your flesh and you can say, I'm a Jew, but if you don't act like one and behave like one, the, that circumcision sign are, doesn't mean a thing. Doesn't mean a thing. And that's, uh, and that's what he's saying here. Let me go on just a little bit more. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as... So he says it's not the mark that you've got in your flesh that counts. It's your behavior that counts. And that behavior is coming out of your heart. Uh, again, you can't fool them. Uh, verse, verse 27, And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, even with your written code and circumcision, are transgressor of the law? I think that text is pretty clear. Verse 28 is very powerful. For he is not a Jew, or we could put Christian, or we could put Seventh-day Adventist. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision that is of the heart, in the spirit, not of the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. 
Uh, let's talk about circumcision a little bit. It can be a little bit uh, sensitive because we're talking about uh, male reproductive organ here. But what, what happens here in circumcision helps us to understand this whole issue that every human being faces that comes into the world. That, that, um, that piece of skin that is cut off represents what happened to Christ on Calvary's cross. Christ became sin for all of us. He took on our nature. Now, He had two natures, if you please. There's a mystery here. Don't ask me to explain it, and nobody can explain it. And people have been arguing for millenniums uh, long before the Adventist church came along formally. But there is just, I just accept some things by faith. And let me tell you what I accept by faith. I accept that Jesus got His character from His Father. He was as pure as the driven snow. But He got His human nature from His mother, and it was carnal. And he, according to, to, to Romans chapter 6, He took it to Calvary's cross and allowed it to die. Killed it, if you please. It was that cutting off of Christ, His death. That becomes my death. So I have to have something cut out of my life. I have to have a circumcision of the heart. So what is it in my heart, in my affections, that has to be cut out? It is my selfish nature. It is my carnal nature. That has to be cut out. And, um, and the Lord says that He does that without hands. In other words, He comes into the human heart. And it's painful. It hurts. It's bloody, if you please. It's difficult. But God, without human hands, comes into the human heart and cuts out by His power that carnal, selfish nature. So we should all pray as it were, Lord God, circumcise my heart. Circumcise it. I want it cut out so that I do not have that any longer. Well, Paul says I die daily. So it's a, yeah, so I think there's a conversion experience. But we have, in a sense, we could pray every morning, Lord, every day come in, cut this carnal nature out. Cut this selfishness out of my heart. I don't want it in my heart. And but the truth is we're powerless to change our hearts. But we can plead with God and press God and urge God and wrestle with God and insist that He gives me a new heart. Yes, fight with Him if you please. That He cut that out of our hearts. Okay, I heard a Yes. Um, could you repeat that again? Uh, Jesus got His pure character from His Father and did you say His carnal nature from His mother? What are you saying? That's what I said. Don't ask me to explain it. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that's all I know. All I know is what the book of Romans says in chapter 6. I'll get there early. We can discuss that. You can never explain it. It's like trying to explain that God is one and God is three. Uh, there is a blending here of the human and divine. And we have two camps in the Adventist church. 
and they each have their text and spirit prophecy quotes. Do I want to get into this, <laughs> Dr. Ratsara? Do I want to get into this? Okay, here, here's, here's the deal. And they say, no, Jesus never had any carnal nature. He, he had a nature just like Adam had before he sinned. And then the other group comes in and say, no. Jesus had, he's tempted in every way just as we are. And, and he has that same nature that Adam had after he sinned. Now here's Jay Gallimore's version. <laughs> and listen to me carefully. They're both right in what they affirm and wrong in what they deny. He had both. And don't ask me to explain it. But I accept by faith and here's what I accept by faith. Jesus was pure as the driven stove, but you can't clean up a dirty mess with a dirty rag. Now the professor can correct me over here, but he's smiling. But he was tempted in all points as we are. And I accept that by faith. I, I always don't like all these gymnastics. People start trying to, to prove how Christ wasn't tempted as we are, and yet He was, and so forth. In fact, I think He was tempted worse than we are. I think He was tempted like we are, and He was tempted worse than we are in some regards. In fact, both of these things set up temptations for Jesus uh, for us. But I just accept the fact that the Scripture reveals what I cannot explain. I cannot explain how God became a man, and yet He's still God, and He's still man. He's 100% God, and He's 100% man. It's a great, marvelous mystery, and I have to leave it there. And that's why I can accept both all those quotes. Anytime you see those kind of walls go up, then somebody's not stepping back and looking at the big picture. And the big picture is... All of that is right. All of it is right. It's not, a, it's not contradicting. It's a paradox for some people's minds. Whether we like it or not, as Adventists and as Christians, some things you have to accept by faith. Amen. Amen. The first four words of your Bible. If you don't accept that, you're dead in the water. Don't try to argue it. Yep. You must believe in the beginning God. Quick, right there. That's right. Because you can't explain his nature. Because you can't explain no. and, and if you try, some people, uh, some people get off on the Holy Spirit because they can't explain the nature of the Holy Spirit. Ellen White says that silence is golden when it comes to trying to explain something like that. We can't even comprehend it. That's well said, Harold. It's well said. Okay. Well, I think that one of his temptations after 40 days of fasting by Satan was. Uh, was dealing with his having into his divinity. So knowing that, we have to uh, say that he was tempted more than me. There's lots we don't understand, but the scripture is very clear that he didn't escape temptation for sure, and didn't escape our temptations for sure. 
All right, let's uh, let's go on. Yes, please. Deuteronomy chapter twenty-eight, verse twenty-nine is clear. Uh, read it for us. Uh, the sacred things belong to the Lord. Amen. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this man. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for sharing that. So anyway, you can read my note on there and um, on, on circumcision. We, we need to understand uh, there what it is. God bless you, Dennis. Okay, let's look at, um, let's go to chapter 3. I've got chapter 3 here to hand out. It's in a little different form. Maybe you can take care of that side of the room. I'll get you to take care of this side of the room for me. Thank you. Chapter 3 is a, is a wonderful chapter, and I'm I, uh, ready to get into that. I apologize for this being a little different, but we had to do new ones. You can fold it or whatever you want to do with it, but it runs on the same format. It's just uh, stapled together a little differently here. Okay, chapter 3, while they're handed that out, I'm, for sake of time, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 and 2. Chapter 3, what advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Verse 2, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. What are the oracles? That's God's Ten Commandments. It's the teachings, it's the law and the prophets. The Jewish people had it. Is it is true knowledge an advantage? Is the truth an advantage? Uh, would you trade the truth for error? No, to have the truth is an advantage. And the Jewish people had the truth. So they had a, they had a real advantage. Um, look, at, look at verse 3. Let's look at verse 3. For what if some did not, some Jews, by the way, did not believe? Will their unbelief, thank you very much, both of you. Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? And notice the verse that goes with that. You can follow along in your lesson. Verse 4, he uses the word, New King James here uses the word certainly not. Here's where I like the Old English better. God forbid seems stronger to me. Uh, certainly not. Indeed. In other words, you cannot nullify the faithfulness of God. Even if you have the Ten Commandments, even if you know the truth, even if you know the oracles of God, and you're still unfaithful, just because you're unfaithful, just because you're a hypocrite, will not negate the faithfulness of God. Yeah, God doesn't change. He's going to be faithful. Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, it is written. Now notice these words carefully. That you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Question and answer, who is the you? Who's the you? God. So why is it important for God to be judged? For us to know that He's 
If God were a tyrant, would He subject Himself to any judgment? Can you think of any tyrant in the world that says, yes, bring in the, bring in the Justice Department and check me out? I'm talking about tyrants. Do you think Stalin would ever allow an investigation of himself? Why? Scoundrels. God who created the universe, who created you and me, all the trillions of cells in our body, and every one of those cells is busier than New York City. So why does God subject Himself to being judged? Yeah. Does He have anything to worry about? He's been accused, has he not? He, he's the focus of the accusation. By the way, when things go wrong in people's life, who's the first person they tend to blame? Well, why is God a prime suspect in the mess? Why is God the prime, a prime suspect? He's in charge of everything. He created everything. So people say, well, if you created it, you must be responsible for this mess. And it's a mess. It's huge. It's in our insurance policy. Acts of God. Yeah, acts of God. I used to say that God, you know, did this and and a lady, I call her a lady elder of our church, took me to dinner, and she explained to me, God allows things to happen for reasons that we don't know. Well, we can't figure out everything in this world. We're all, we're all, look at us. I mean, we're all old age positive. We're all dying, even the youngest among us. Every, every, every newborn baby comes in the world. So my grandmother used to say, born to die. It's the truth. It's a terrible thing. We're all, we're all being subject to it. We're all suffering through it. So who's responsible? Let me tell you what, Adventists sometimes get accused of um, Pastor Borg. I really enjoy the ones I've been able to hear. I hope you've enjoyed them as much as I have. Um, he got into the scapegoat just a little bit, and I'm not going to uh, go through all of that, but I want to give you just a little bit of update on that. And that is that the, the whole issue of the scapegoat is all about who's to blame. The investigative judgment going on now in heaven is not only clearing the saints for translation. It's clearing all the accusations against God Himself. Here's the God of heaven who subjects Himself to His own creatures and says, check me out. There's the accusation. When God does that, He's going to come out clear. Because it's going to be seen in the universe that God is not the prime mover of evil. 
He's the prime mover of good. There's only one prime mover of evil. The prime mover of evil is the devil and his evil angels. The devil is the prime mover. And uh, Azel is recognized by the universe, and that's why you come to the end of the millennium. The whole millennium comes after the investigative judgment, where God is cleared, if you please. I'm telling you, can you trust a God like that? Can you trust a God like that? And that's what it does. It builds trust between Him and those He rules. It's powerful, really. All right, let's look at number five. Uh, I've really covered number five, so I'm going to skip down. I'm going to skip Ezekiel 18, 20 through uh, 31. I'm going to tell you about it, but I'm going to skip it for sake of time. In Ezekiel, God is, uh, uh, Israel is upset with God because they saw salvation should be based on a pair of balances. And if my good deeds outweighed my bad deeds, I should be saved. That was the way they thought. You can read it for yourself. And God said through Ezekiel, No, no. If a man has lived a good life all of his life and he turns evil, he's going to be lost. If a man has lived a horrible life, a bad life through all of his life, and at the end of his life he turns and repents and and gives his heart to me, he's going to be saved. And Israel said, not fair. That is not fair. Well, what do you think? Sounds like they might have had a point. When you think about it, That's right. So, look at that note under number 7. In the days of Ezekiel, Jews believed that God could be just only if He weighed a person's good deeds against his bad deeds. If the good ones outweighed the bad ones, the person would go to heaven and vice versa. They felt this was only fair. God rejects this and says He will judge each person according to the condition of his heart. That's why God promises to give us new hearts. Hallelujah. Notice another note under number 8. God pleads with Israel to possess a new heart and a new spirit. The only way for sinners to possess a new heart and a new spirit is by faith in Christ. Wouldn't God be unjust to destroy a person with a faithful heart? just as a farmer would be foolish to destroy a good fruit tree. The reason a farmer keeps a good fruit tree is he enjoys good fruit. The reason God keeps alive a person with a heart of unselfish love is because he enjoys good deeds. The only way you can become a good fruit tree is to get a new heart. And the only way to get a new heart is to trust the Savior to give you one. It's by faith in Christ Jesus and what He can do for you. All right, let's look at verse, um, looking at Romans 3 verses, going back, I guess, to verse 5 to 7. I've, I've kind of gone through that, and I want to skip down now, if you don't mind. I want to go down to verse, verse 9. I think I've uh, nailed that point. Some of that you're going, to, you're going to see for your own self. 
I want to look at verse uh, 9 for a moment. What then? Are we better than they? Are Jews better than Gentiles? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that all are what? Therefore, there's no doers of the law that can be saved because they are all charged with being what? Sinners. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none, I'm looking at uh, verse 10 and 11. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. And he goes down this whole list of evil. And in verse 18, he ends it with this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What is it about the fear of God that keeps a person from doing evil? Did I talk about this yesterday? Did I talk about Eve yesterday? No. I want you to go back to the Garden of Eden for a moment. What's, what did the devil, what did he attack when he went and tempted Eve? What did he attack? What did she say? He said to her, can you not eat of the fruit? And what did she say? Because God has said, in the day you eat of it, you will. Is that fear? Yes or no? Come on. It's not complicated. God said very clearly, there's a fear factor here. And the fear factor is, if you eat that fruit, you'll die. If you trust me, you won't eat it. So what does the devil have to do? He's got to break her trust. How does he break her trust? By attacking her fear of God. You following me? So if he attacks her fear of God and she loses her fear of God, she no longer trusts God, and immediately she sins. That's why the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Job says the fear of God, that is wisdom. Now, people struggle with this, and I understand there's even a teaching that got going out in a certain institution that I won't name. And the professor of that particular theology had a famous name that wrote a lot of books. But he went to University of Chicago or seminary in Chicago and he picked up this whole idea that God never punishes anybody. <coughs> that sin is simply the outworking of its own results. Again, it's right in what it affirms, wrong in what it denies. Sin is the outworking. Many times the results that we get in our own life is because of our own foolishness. How many of you have ever suffered consequences of your own foolishness? Maybe I should ask it another way. Is there anybody here who's never suffered the consequences of your own foolishness? God allows things to work out. Ellen White makes a very interesting statement in one place that she says that the 
that in the final destruction, people have condemned themselves. I'm paraphrasing here. The glory of God to those who are saved is life everlasting. But that same glory of God to the unsaved is a consuming fire. See, people say, well, what about John, 1 John chapter 4 where it says, perfect love casts out fear. It's often pulled out of its context. The verse before that says that in the day of judgment, we will have boldness because perfect love casts out fear. So if you have Christ and you are in Christ, do you need to be afraid of the judgment? No. But if you do not have Christ, so what should the Christian be afraid of? Oh, yes. Yes. To be separated from Christ. We should fear to be separated from Christ. He's our everything. He's our covering. He's our So we should fear. Oh Lord, don't let me ever be separated from Jesus. Don't let this union with Christ ever be broken. Because if it's broken, God will surely hold me accountable for my sins. The fear of God is simply saying that God holds His creatures who He gave a free will to accountable for their behavior. He will do it. It's not a matter of if. He will do it. But hallelujah, we have a Savior. And God doesn't want to hold us accountable. Isn't that nice? He does love us so very much. He says, I don't want to. I will. I will hold you accountable. But I don't want to. I don't want you because it's not going to be, it's going to be an awful time. It's going to be an awful day. It's going to be awful for me. It's going to be awful for you. I don't want you to have to suffer that day of judgment. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do because I love you so much and I know how terrible that is and I have a heart of compassion and I don't want you to suffer that day. I'm sending my only begotten son. I'm sending him to Calvary's cross. I'm going to give him as a gift to you and if you will just accept him, you don't have to stand in the day of judgment. That's why perfect love cast out. Fear. But there's no such thing as no fear of God. Fear of God, the beginning of wisdom. Fear of God, yea, that is wisdom. And God is love. And that's why He wants to deliver us from that day of accountability. That's why the gospel becomes so important to us. Uh, I got down to, to uh, where did I get here? To, oh, fear of God. Okay, let's, 
Let's look at verse uh, 21. This starts getting in the heart of it. I'm looking at the clock. I may have to come back at this tomorrow again. But now this is a really important one. This confuses a lot of people. But now the righteousness of God, but now, underline the word now, verse 21 of chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God, what's the next word? Apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. And then I'll get into the perpetuation bit. Let me go back to that text. How is it that now, Paul says, the righteousness of God is demonstrated apart from the law. The law is God's character. The law is holy, just, and good. The law is righteous. You can never get any... Never do you find the prophets or the apostles ever saying that the law is anything but holy, just, and good. They never condemn the law. So why do we need a demonstration of God's righteousness? apart from the law. Because if, if the demonstration of God's righteousness is only in the law, we die. Because we're transgressors. So God's righteousness will kill us if it's expressed only in the law. So he has to find another way to express it. So how does God express His righteousness? Jesus. Away from the law. It's in Christ. It is in the death and resurrection of Jesus, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He expresses His righteousness. Is the righteousness found in Christ different from that which is found in the law. What's that? Yes, he did. Let me use an illustration. How many of you are breathing oxygen right now? Are, 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 are you glad that there's an expression of oxygen in the air? Am I right? Uh, there is an expression of oxygen right now because you're breathing it and I'm breathing it. Uh, what if you took a fish and put him in this room? Does a, fish, does a fish consume oxygen, yes or no? Yes. Is the oxygen in the water the same as the oxygen in the air? Yes. Yes, it is. Oxygen is oxygen. All right? But for the fish, if that oxygen is expressed only in the air, what happens to the fish? He has to have a different expression of oxygen in order to live. Isn't that right? So we have to have a different expression of God's righteousness in order to live. And that expression is Christ. And the reason for that is found later in that word propitiation. Watching the time. 
let me, let me go down to that word, verse 25. Whom God set forth as a perpetuation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Verse 26, there's that word again. To demonstrate at the present time, that's the now, present time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. That word perpetuation means satisfaction. A lot of people who don't believe that God punishes, they, this is where they go. They don't like this. The word perpetuation means that you satisfy an angry God. That's why the devil worshipers bring offerings. That's why witchcraft deteriorates into human sacrifice because they're trying to appease this angry God. And people say, so, so this can't be, you, you, can't have, you can't have an angry God who's being appeased because that would be just like the pagans. Does justice demand satisfaction, yes or no? Justice demands that if you take the life of another person, Am I right? Will not be satisfied until your life is forfeited. Am I right? So there is a sense of satisfaction to justice. Now God is not like devils and heathen gods. I want to make that clear. But there is a sense where God as judge who is responsible for justice must be satisfied that justice has been met. That makes sense? So there is an issue of satisfaction here. The big difference between perpetuation with the God of heaven and the devil and heathenism and paganism and pagan sacrifices is this. that God provides His own sacrifice. While those pagan gods demand that you bring a sacrifice. You see the difference? God looks at you and He says, you, even if you wanted to, you don't have anything that can satisfy the justice. So I will do it for you. I will provide my own son as the propitiation. And he will satisfy my justice. And I will let you go free. There is the essence of the Christian gospel. 
There is what sets the Christian religion apart from every other religion on the face of the earth. There's no other God who sacrifices Himself to His own justice and sets us free. If you cannot love a God like that, there's something terribly wrong. The whole universe marvels at this. How can Jesus, one life, pay for all of our lives? I will tell you why. What is, who is greater? What is greater? The artist or the art? In our world, it's the artist. No, it's the art. But in God's world, it's the artist that's more valuable than the art. And obviously it makes common sense. The creator is more valuable than the created. Am I right? So if Jesus is from eternity, and he is, and if by His hands, according to John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Jehovah Witness put out its period right there, we don't. And the Word was God. Then when Jesus died on Calvary's cross, His sacrifice is worth the entire universe, including all of us. That's why His one sacrifice can pay for all of us. And it's why an angel could not take our place. The Creator Himself who took responsibility for the creation by sending His only begotten Son to become the perpetuation. God sacrificed Himself to His own justice and set us free. That's why on Mount Moriah when Isaac, the knife was above Isaac, God said, don't touch the lad. And in the bushes was a ram and God provided the ram in place of Isaac. Bow our heads. Father in heaven, we don't, cannot even comprehend what a great and marvelous God you are. We can't understand such depths of love. Father in heaven, please, not only give us a deeper revelations of your love, but give us hearts that can appreciate it and be grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www 
www.audioverse.org.